0: Thank you. is an in-depth story analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. I don't think anyone could have predicted Captain America the Winter Soldier. Not its sophistication and storytelling, not the richness of its characters, not the poignancy and thoughtfulness of its political commentary, and certainly not the enormous, sweeping changes it would make to our perception of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Certainly, nobody expected the Captain America sequel to be so pivotal to the ongoing story unfolding throughout these movies, or to hear a lot of critics call it a better, smarter, and more emotional film than The Avengers. It goes without saying, but you couldn't have this movie without that or without Captain America The First Avenger, and arguably, it's impossible to get exactly this version of Captain America without starting with Iron Man, and having that very clear contrast between two heroes with opposing ideologies and motivations. But while The Avengers is much better as a part of a greater whole, Winter Soldier is brilliant, both as the next chapter in the Marvel saga and as an end unto itself. The approach the Rousseau brothers took in making this film is what makes it so refreshing, and it's one every adaptation can and should take, regardless of whether it's the first or 15th film in a franchise. Develop a story from what and who your character is at his core bring out ideas and themes that seem inherent to the situation you put that character in, and make sure your big action set pieces and fan service and everything serve that story. Winter Soldier deals with a lot of heavy present-day issues in an effort to see Captain America, a man out of time, struggling with the rigors of the world we live in, a more cynical, seemingly more hopeless world. He faces that freedom versus protection problem set up in Avengers head-on, an issue that's even more prevalent now than it was just a couple years ago. Is our safety or our privacy more important to us? And do we even trust the leaders whose job it is to protect us to do that job? Winter Soldier is a politically charged movie that doesn't heavy-handedly try to force an agenda on us. It makes observations about the world we live in and incorporates them into a high-concept conspiracy thriller. So while it's one of the most intense and pensive superhero films to date, it also has a ton of fun finding creative ways to integrate those politics. Namely, in making Hydra responsible for manipulating the world into a more disparaging place once its symbol of hope is taken off the map. So that when he returns, it's to a world he hardly recognizes, perverted by the very antithesis to freedom and democracy he thought he gave his life to destroy. Rather than with a message or a lesson, the Rousseau's start with an idea, a perilous situation that suits and challenges their protagonist. What would be Steve Rogers' worst nightmare? A world that not only isn't free, but where people give their freedom up willingly. A humanity so obsessed with survival, it's forgotten how to live, and it's perhaps on the verge of becoming something less than human. If Steve Rogers were thought out now, as the Rousseau's point out in their commentary, after 9-11, as opposed to in the 60s when Stan Lee originally brought him out of the ice, or even in 1990 when Albert Pune's film did it, how would he feel about the uncertain, even paranoid world he found? And so a movie that easily could have felt throwaway or superfluous like Thor The Dark World becomes a bold step forward, another sequel that raises the bar even higher for what comic adaptations can be. There was no mandate here from Marvel to make this a grand event film that changed the face of the Marvel Universe. It was a collaboration of writers and directors who fought to get this job, didn't take it for granted, had an idea that ignited their passions, and they nurtured it from infancy to adulthood to help it become the best superhero movie and the best spy thriller it could be. They also had an entire year to develop the story, and I wish every movie had that too although I don't know that every filmmaker would take advantage of that time properly. I don't mean to overstate things here or to simply gush about a movie I admire. I'm not saying Winter Soldier is perfect. I'm saying it's a breath of fresh air. Yes, movies are hard work, and yes, individuals kill themselves to meet deadlines doing their very best and most impassioned work on movies I rake over the coals for lazy characterization and playing audiences for saps, as if someone just sneezed the movie out one day and sent it straight to theaters. I know almost no movie has ever been made that way. But film is, most of the time, a narrative art form. And that means that if the score is brilliant, or the set design is out of this world, or the lighting is inspired, but the story sucks movie still sucks. When every scene, every moment seems essential to the story, when I'm sucked in and invested in your characters, in fear for their lives, even though I know intellectually who's probably not gonna die, i.e. the film's title character who's also an Avenger and whose actor is contractually signed for more movies, when I forget I'm watching a movie and feel like I'm inhabiting someone else's reality, especially one where a World War II super soldier is fighting a program killing machine with a robot arm brought out of cryostasis and. 2014, and at one point our hero is literally standing in the brain of a Nazi scientist whose mind has been preserved on 1970s data tape, well that is a real accomplishment. Captain America the Winter Soldier is, to me, the Dark Knight of the Marvel films. First and foremost, of course, it's a movie that got the attention of and is taken seriously by a lot of moviegoers and critics as a good entry in its class of film outside of superhero movie, and it sets a new standard, proving once again that a movie based on superhero comics and even one with outlandish sci-fi elements like this one can be gripping and resonate with people who aren't superhero fans. The Dark Knight was a good crime drama. This is a good espionage and conspiracy thriller. Winter Soldier is inspired by older spy movies. It takes a lot of its dramatic cues, its suspenseful pacing and atmosphere, and its structure directly from those films, namely Three Days of the Condor, and is seriously trying to build on those things and even surpass them if it can. It's making that sort of movie and building on that tradition, as opposed to superficially ripping off those elements in an otherwise routine superhero movie. This and The Dark Knight are both fresh and groundbreaking, and yet, curiously, they have a lot of details in common, both on the production side and the story side. They're both sequels that outperformed and are generally more highly regarded than their predecessors. There's a sense of urgency and suspenseful, sometimes unnerving atmosphere that reverberates throughout them. They both take some inspiration from James Bond movies. They both see our heroes executing an elaborate covert mission in an exotic locale in the opening act. Order vs. Chaos serves both as its central theme. Both see a villain challenging the core of our hero's value system, attempting to prove that his worldview has no merit and that his belief and trust in the inherent goodness in people is unfounded. The character who serves as a frightening mirror for our hero attacks out in the open, in public places, creates carnage, and is accompanied by a single foreboding chord in the score. That character is a direct response to the existence and actions of the hero. Both the Joker and the Winter Soldier are a result of the notion of the escalation Gordon talks about at the end of Batman Begins. The Joker wants to prove that corruption and chaos are inevitable, and the Batman's idea of order and justice simply aren't in our human DNA. And The Winter Soldier is Hydra's attempt at a super soldier and Hydra's tactics after World War II evolved based on Captain America's defeat of Red Skull and America winning the war, trying to create a world where people would give up their freedom willingly rather than trying to take it from them. Both see the lead law enforcement agent who works closely with our hero faking his own death, and both antagonist plots include the manipulation of very large ships of some kind in the final act. That one is total coincidence, and neither here nor there. Winter Soldier isn't Skyfall, a movie that feels a lot like The Dark Knight and shares some of the same story beats because it's directly influenced by that movie, a Bond movie inspired by a Batman movie that was partially inspired by Bond movies. Sounds like pure regurgitation, but I think that's a pretty good flick, too. The Dark Knight was almost certainly influential on this movie, but probably not directly. The Rousseaus are really open in their commentary about what they, in their words, blatantly steal from other movies, and The Dark Knight never comes up. But that movie is so much a part of our cultural consciousness now, and you likely wouldn't have the audacity to make this dark and visceral of a thriller out of this material without it, much less convince a studio that this would be the next place to take a character like Captain America. They gain the audience's attention and establish credibility in similar ways, and they're both using the political climate and social fears of the moment to inform their world and their dramatic situation. But they were, of course, quite different films. Perhaps it was Marvel's next step, and one that the studio desperately needed to take if it was going to get past the light, comedic, and colorful reputation and prove its versatility as a studio. Remember, Guardians of the Galaxy came out in August, four months after this. 2014 was a pivotal turning point. I couldn't have made the point in my Avengers review that Marvel has proven itself a well-rounded studio that can make a movie in every conceivable wheelhouse and make us believe they all happen in the same reality... Before that, I think part of the reason Guardians was so well-received is because of the quality and freshness of this film. It doesn't feel like more of the same. It's smart, it feels real and gritty, but it also hasn't lost the heart and levity we've come to expect from these movies. Quality and freshness. And now I've equated a great superhero movie with Tupperware. I'm just a kitchen drawer away from another food metaphor. The Rousseau say they were shooting for an Empire Strikes Back mood, a darker film that treats its audience like adults and pushes its protagonist to his absolute limits, not to mention dropping a big bombshell on him about his past and how personal the evil he's fighting really is. That works because, just like with Empire, it doesn't stop being a Captain America movie when it gets rougher and less innocent. That's just the natural course the story takes, and we've got storytellers behind it that are savvy enough to ease us into that mood so it doesn't come off like a gimmick or a sudden hard to pour course correction. It's also like WALL-E. I never expected an almost post-apocalyptic science fiction film from Pixar about humanity losing itself to the over-dependence of technology. The backdrop of that movie is darker than anything they had ever attempted, but that's necessary to the story it's telling, and it doesn't get caught up in the bleak trappings. All three of those films, maybe Empire less so, before you've seen Jedi just because the story is even less finished than this one is, are incredibly optimistic about humanity's ability to endure and the power of friendship and community. And all three of them are either made by or now owned by a Disney subsidiary. Eh, go figure. If Disney has to rule the world, as I always said they would when I was a kid, at least they're making movies that emotionally resonate with people. But what Winter Soldier has over The Dark Knight is a little more subtlety. And again, I'm saying that about a movie with a mad scientist preserved on 1970s supercomputers. He doesn't veer into the heavy-handed lane Dark Knight begins to and Dark Knight Rises drives the whole interstate in. The movie makes its ideas explicit, but doesn't backseat drive, allowing its characters to discuss the movie's events realistically rather than speaking in abstractions. Steve and Fury and Natasha and Sam are all characters with unique points of view that never feel like mouthpieces for the writers and directors, and they never feel the need to hold my hand like they know I'm watching, and they think I'm five, and they're afraid I won't understand what's happening, and what I'm supposed to be taking from their narrative. It's a refreshing movie to analyze, because I never feel like it's analyzing itself. What makes me so invested in the story from the outset is that the stakes are personal and internal, before they're global and external. Yes, it's another villain who wants to tear down the old world and build a new one plot. It's got that one in common with Batman Begins, not to mention the big surprise reveal that somehow managed to keep from being leaked on the internet and yes the ripple effects into the movies both forward and backward will be massive i'm sure didn't know that jerk-faced senator from iron man 2 was hydra that explains everything and ooh hydra almost got their hands on the tesseract in avengers that deepens the experience a little when you rewatch it but i care about all that a lot more because it's so heart-wrenching to see what it does to steve and because i want so badly for him to overcome it all It's got one of my favorite moments of foreshadowing in a movie now, when Steve is attacked in that beautifully tense elevator sequence and Rumlow says, it isn't personal. Steve replies with, it kind of feels personal. And as he pulls back the curtains to reveal the conspiracy, he discovers it's all a thousand times more personal than he could have ever guessed. That turns into a moment of foreshadowing going the other way when it becomes personal for Rumlow by Civil War, after he gets burned to a crisp here and seeks retribution on Captain America in that movie. And that serves, of course, as a really natural and well-integrated supervillain origin story. It's a horrific moment for Steve when he discovers that, to paraphrase Arnim Zola, his death and his life both seem to have amounted to a zero-sum. He fought and sacrificed, he believed, as his plane went down in the Arctic, his life, to destroy Hydra and preserve freedom. Even if, as I discussed when I reviewed the first Avenger, that sacrifice seems totally unnecessary. It turns out he didn't die for his country, but he certainly gave up his future. And even more so in this present-day take, with the United States so completely politically and idealistically divided and the woman he thought he might make a life with elderly and suffering from dementia on her deathbed. And then, much worse than all of that, he faces the thing I imagine would have come out of his box instead of a bat were he to breathe in the aroma of Ducard's blue flower and Batman begins. Hydra firmly in control of the future. And it might seem convenient that shortly after he returns to the world, the conspiracy is revolving totally around his history and the masterminds behind it are a new generation of the same masterminds he fought in World War II. But this may be one of the few stories you can get away with that in. And the Rousseaus are masters at exploiting every story opportunity that presents itself ...and not letting those opportunities slip by. They're looking at the world as it is... ...and how astonishingly different it is now... ...versus what it looked like in Steve's day. And they're playing in an extraordinary alternate reality... ...where a guy with a creepy red skull face... ...made weapons out of an energy cube... ...that came from the Norse god Odin's treasure room... ...who gets defeated by a man who gets superhuman strength... ...by being bombarded with gamma rays... ...and uses a shield made out of an indestructible metal. In that reality... Could we be led to buy a Hydra conspiracy that explains a lot of the cynicism that plagues the world today? Yeah, I think so. Importantly, Steve's disappearance is the inciting incident that makes all this possible. Captain America is the most pure encapsulation of the antithesis to Hydra. He inspires a generation and then suddenly disappears off the map. I love the idea that everything goes to hell without him. After the first Avenger made me by, he was really the most worthy person to be the super soldier and that someone that altruistic could really exist. You take away that extreme and the other extreme dominates, certainly not without resistance and certainly not without a lot of time and patience. Captain America obviously isn't the only good person fighting against injustice throughout history. But as the decades wear on, people are affected, maybe infected is the better word, by Hydra's influence. And so it stands to reason there would be even fewer Steve Rogers than in Captain America's day. Also consider that Hydra quietly eliminates as many heroes that might thwart their plans as possible, like Tony Stark's parents. Not only could Captain America continue to set the counterexample, and not only would he be a lot harder to kill, but he'd have been about the only thing in the 40s or 50s that could stand up to the Winter Soldier. I kind of think the most contrived element to all of this is Captain America getting thought out not too long before Project Insight goes into effect. And that was always a contrivance, in every iteration of his origin that uses that. And if Pierce and the rest of HYDRA was looking at history, they might have considered trying to assassinate Captain America before they initiated Project Insight, just to be on the safe side. But A, if all goes according to plan, the helicarriers go up as a S.H.I.E.L.D. program and Nick Fury himself authorizes it. Having no idea it's going to be used to kill 20 million people and Captain America himself is one of them. And B, killing Captain America before the big guns are turned on would be a really tough thing to do. HYDRA wouldn't want to arouse suspicion or let people see the Winter Soldier in public, as he would be their best bet for killing Captain America and that'd be hard to do quietly. Which, of course, is exactly what they do when they get desperate and go after Nick Fury in broad daylight. Man, that guy's house must be a fortress. Hydra is terrifying, but seeing it all from Steve's perspective, made possible because I spent an entire film getting into his head before this, is a profound, unfathomable nightmare. This is how powerful point of view can be to storytelling. Were I distanced from Steve throughout the story, if I didn't sit with him as Peggy tells him how much she regrets that he didn't get to live a life, if I didn't see how alone he feels as he searches for a kindred spirit among the people he works with and can't find one, and if I didn't see the Winter Soldier through his eyes, when it goes from a nightmare to a personal hell, I'd be really intrigued by the idea of Hydra as an institution that orchestrates the almost dehumanization of a large segment of the world's population in order to save it, but Steve Rogers is the living embodiment of the opposite of that idea. If the movie can make me see the world as he does, Hydra becomes something much more than just the thematically appropriate but obligatory bad guy of the movie. It's a thriller for the audience, but for Steve... It's a horror story, and it makes me root so hard for him and makes his obstacles so seemingly insurmountable that there are haunting moments where I feel I'm standing in Steve's shoes and living his trauma. In order to make me personally invested in Captain America's descent into the madness of this brave new world, he has to remain sympathetic, and the Rousseau's have put him in a place where that is extremely difficult to do. First Avenger made holding on to his hopeful attitude and his belief in people hard enough, but Witter Soldier makes it nigh impossible. That's an extremely hard line to walk. How do you make Steve human while he's refusing to cave under the pressure of losing everything he cares about, while he doubts whether there's any place for his optimism in the 21st century? He could easily become super whiny, and this is a guy with stuff to complain about, and he could also easily become emotionally bulletproof, where he takes the nightmare in stride to a point of absurdity. This is a Steve Rogers who is totally lost through most of the movie, and yet clings to his ideals because they're really all he has left. And I think that's the key. We see plenty of despair and uncertainty and bewilderment on his face, and though he's guarded, he does articulate many of his frustrations about the system he's a part of, about how alienated he feels, about how he doesn't even know what he wants for himself now that his old life is over. But he does what he did during the war. He fights his gut instinct and follows his personal code, even, as he says in that great speech on the helicarrier, if he's the only one. That's how he's kept consistent and true to the character he met in the first Avenger. And the movie is also smart to let Steve be rattled and make mistakes in the moment, like when he hesitates, coming face-to-face with Bucky after the bridge fight, and he, Natasha, and Sam are taken prisoner because of it. He's going to make the right decisions, but he's only human. Anybody who sees his best friend who he thought died 70 years earlier transformed into an inhuman perversion of himself, especially after he thought he failed stopping Hydra and his life amounted to nothing, is going to freeze in his tracks. Plus, he's called the Winter Soldier. He has that effect on people. Just as in the first Avenger and the Avengers... Oh, hey, I guess this is the first movie with Captain America that doesn't have the word Avenger in the title. Steve's character arc is all about having myriad opportunities to change and refusing to. The Rousseaus liken him to Rocky in their commentary, a principled man who's constantly told he can't win, but he pushes on and does what he thinks is right, regardless of the outcome. Steve is superhuman in body only. Inside, he's just a kid from Brooklyn, and that's what's so endearing about him. He has all the same struggles and doubts you and I would have. He's a lot like Richard Donner Superman in that way. I think people sometimes forget that Christopher Reeve also portrayed the ideal superhero as a man who had to fight temptation, who could be incited to rage, and who wondered if all his hard work would ever pay off. It's the pessimistic perspective that a real person couldn't possibly turn out like Superman or Captain America that Steve is fighting against, and that's partly what makes it so believable. That very argument is the main conflict of the story. It's interesting that Man of Steel felt the need to make Clark more conflicted about his morality in updating that material for a modern audience audience and a lot of people struggled to find him relatable but while Steve is once again tempted to change and refuses to it's a very different character arc because he doesn't know what he wants I mean, he wants what he's always wanted, to fight for liberty, but the people he's working for don't seem to hold the same values he does, and he often doesn't even know who he's fighting, like he did even in the Avengers when he fought the Chitauri. So in his refusing to change, to get with the program, as Fury says, he might find himself totally useless. Although I'd be fine with a whole movie where he follows Sam's advice and tries ultimate fighting, then it really would be a Rocky movie. So what Steve wants is a sense of relevance and purpose, which he starts to find at the end when he helps to defeat Hydra, for real this time, when he's able to fight as a soldier again and not a spy, differentiated wonderfully in the two costumes and the grave, depressing color palette versus the bright and hopeful palette in the end. It pulls off exactly what I said The Amazing Spider-Man should have done with its third act. Steve finds some hope in the people he's worked with all movie, sort of his new howling commandos, a hope he couldn't find when Fury was talking about pointing a gun to everyone's head, and the person he works with closest was telling him the truth isn't the same for all people all the time. Most importantly, he finds hope in a specific purpose in Bucky, who he might be able to help in getting his identity back. The first time I saw Winter Soldier, I made fun of it for the sheer number of times Steve falls out of the sky. I thought it was unintentionally hilarious. It seemed like every other scene he was doing that Batman Forever death drop, but that visually illustrates Steve's journey. It's Batman Begins' Why Do We Fall on a grand scale, except that was about a man making mistakes and learning from them, and this is more about a man who's doing the right thing and encountering heavy resistance, like in a righteous war. Steve is constantly trying to rise above the lies and uncover the truth, but his enemies want him on the ground, where things are murky and complicated. The truth turns out not to be on or above the surface, but below it, buried. And that's Steve's descent into the Underworld. Like so many traditional heroes, he has to journey into Hell before he can return home and use what he's learned for the benefit of his homeland. Then it's in the sky, above the chaos Hydra has sown, that Steve reveals that truth to the rest of S.H.I.E.L.D., just before he makes the same sacrifice he made to stop Hydra the first time. Except now, it's a lot more effective, because it's not at all contrived. And he's knocked down once more, he thinks for good, if not for Bucky. This sky motif also represents a lot of our major players' attitudes about their relationship with the rest of humanity. And of course, that motif isn't unique to this movie, but it's so subtle about it, I can't even tell if it's intentional. It's not something the Rousseaus talk about in their commentary, and as much as I love their discussion on the film, they do sometimes analyze their own material. Again, at least the movie itself never goes there. Hydra slash S.H.I.E.L.D. looms over the world as if from Mount Olympus. They're playing God with their trinity of helicarriers, deciding who should live and who should die. Fury and Pierce both look down at the populace from their high towers, making decisions for people who they don't think are qualified or they don't trust to make decisions for themselves. And again, their method for making those decisions ascends from underground, from the pit of hell. Fury certainly has more noble motivations for initiating what he thinks Project Insight is than Pierce does, and we'll talk about those things, but they both intentionally set themselves above the rest of humanity. Fury believes the good needs to be protected from the bad, and he can't tell the difference, so he trusts only himself to watch over people. And Pierce plans an Old Testament cleansing of everyone who threatens Hydra's rule. It really is like a god wiping out all the blasphemers that don't worship him. The Project Insight algorithm is like god looking into men's hearts and knowing what kind of people they'll prove to be. A god who, I guess, isn't a Doctor Strange fan and doesn't want that movie to come out. Nobody hates Hydra more than Benedict Cumberbatch fans. Captain America is sort of like a half-god from Greek mythology, the son of two worlds who favors humanity. He's like a god to people, but he's also one of them and sees himself as such. Steve doesn't want to look down at humanity like fury. Both men want to protect people, but Steve wants to trust them and only respond when someone gives him a reason not to. He wants to be on the ground, among people, but he also doesn't recognize them anymore, so he's forced to go both above and below in order to figure out what's happened to the culture and lead it in the right direction again, assuming it's not too late. Steve represents the ideal man, but he doesn't see himself that way. For Alexander Pierce, peace is a responsibility. For Captain America, the responsibility is setting the altruistic example. Not because he's better than everyone else, but because if he can pull it off, he thinks surely anyone else could. And wouldn't our species have a shot at a better future if we could all be like that? So then you got Falcon, who flies above people with his glider, but just like Cap, doesn't see himself as above them, only rises to the occasion and takes on the bad guys who have elevated themselves to the station of godhood. And Sam has already been through his Crucible, a man who made sacrifices in war and has moved on, having already found that new place in the world helping at the VA that Steve is looking for. So Falcon is able to fly steady with a sense of purpose while Cap is still constantly falling and having to get off the ground. Except for when Falcon loses a wing and gets grounded to make Cap's mission at the end a lot harder. That's not to say Falcon is a mentor character for Steve. He's Steve's partner, not a guide. But he is the embodiment of Steve's hope for the future, a modern man who believes in and fights for the same brand of personal freedom he does, and wears the most obvious symbol of freedom, eagle's wings. And side note, it's really interesting to me that Falcon's wings are Stark tech, Stark who often stands for the opposite of Steve's worldview, which we'll get into with Age of Ultron and Civil War. This is where it's impossible not to look at the greater whole, because this is informed almost entirely by things that build on this later, but Stark is for trying to prevent problems before they start, as Fury is doing here, and usually puts protection over individual liberty. So it's ironic that his company, if not Tony personally, built Falcon's Wings, which stand for principles that are decisively not Tony Stark's. Maybe I should have saved that point for later, but... Falcon's more prominent here than he's been anywhere else so far, and I'm going to have a 16-character breakdown undertaking when I review Civil War, so I figured I'd go ahead and drop it here. And finally, Black Widow and the Winter Soldier have a similar relationship with this motif like Fury and Pierce do, but the opposite. They're both on the ground and among the populace, not at all part of it, but not above it either. They're the foot soldiers of the self-proclaimed gods, but Natasha and Bucky have both been rendered seemingly less than human, or at the very least, broken humans. Lesser than the people they spy on and kill for their organizations, but ultimately what those organizations hope to turn society into. Loyal, obedient, disposable servants who all think and act exactly the same and have no will or ambition of their own. Of course, Natasha wasn't conditioned to be that way by S.H.I.E.L.D. She was raised to kill for the KGB, and she's trying to turn over a new leaf, but discovers here as she says that she just traded the KGB for Hydra. What a tragic revelation, and again, a personal one that makes the Hydra conspiracy much more than a plot twist. The chameleon who refuses to land on an identity because she wants to be able to adapt to any situation has actually been working for the same fascist outfit that stole Bucky's identity away from from him, While Pierce and Fury are trying to control humanity, and Cap and Falcon are trying to preserve its freedom, Natasha and Bucky are, at first, weapons that seem to be aimed by each side of that conflict at each other, and by the end, are working toward regaining their humanity. Winter Soldier continues to build on ideas and ethical conundrums established and explored in previous movies, the control theme that was the heart of the Avengers, the freedom versus security question that will become the crux of Age of Ultron. But this is a very personal story, that uses all that as a backdrop to explore friendship and how essential that is to the human condition. We have two opposing viewpoints between Captain America and Pierce, with several more nuanced versions of each represented by our supporting characters in between. Pierce believes the survival of the human race requires people to work together to all be exactly the same, as close as you can get to a collective consciousness without physically networking everyone's minds together like the Borg. Although, wiping memories and inputting programming is certainly similar in that your will is not your own, but almost scarier because all the power goes to one or a select few at the top who aren't subject to that programming. Well, I guess you also have that with the board Queen once you get to First Contact, but... I digress. And Steve believes human survival means working together not to become a single entity that doesn't care if it loses a hand or a foot, but unique people who work toward their own goals but care about every single person's right to do that for himself. Interestingly, unlike a lot of global takeover plots, this isn't about greed. We don't have one person obsessed with power who wants it all for himself. Both Steve and Pierce are trying to obtain their goals by getting people to work together. They both think they're doing the right thing, and they both have a point. Project Insight, assuming the algorithm works as well as Zola claims, would almost certainly lead to a lasting peace in the world. And we've had a couple thousand years to prove that Steve's belief in people to look out for each other is well-founded, and history has proven us to be a pretty selfish lot. Comparing this to The Dark Knight again, it's interesting how the order and chaos sides are flipped here. Our hero is, from the perspective of our antagonist, the Joker, the one in favor of chaos. And I think Pierce sees Captain America's belief in people as madness like the way Batman looks at the Joker, that his way leads to our destroying ourselves. Pearson Hydra's philosophy is sort of like if the Joker thought order could be imposed despite his belief that social enlightenment is an illusion and people are really animals at heart. It's frightening enough to consider that maybe the Joker isn't crazy in The Dark Knight, and it's equally frightening to consider that he is, and this is him if he were totally sane and rational. But we've always remained human, and that's the price of Pierce's brand of peace. If he wins, we have no chance at bettering ourselves. As Steve says on the helicarrier, the price for freedom is high. But the price for world peace, not gained through a society that gradually evolves into a less petty, more compromising one, but forced into it with, again, a gun to our heads, A, may not be sustainable, as suggested in Watchmen, but B, and more importantly for our purposes here, is a peace that, for Steve, is bought for a price that is much higher than the loss of life. It's bought through the loss of self, and we see the consequences and horror of that in what happens to Bucky. I'm with you till the end of the line is Steve's definition of friendship. A flashback line he echoes is the helicarrier he's on with the Winter Soldier falls out of the sky. Steve desperately wants to believe that his friend isn't lost to him, and in that moment of despair, nothing else matters. This time, he knows he's defeated Hydra, if not completely rooted it out, and because of Sam's natural optimism and the incremental change he's seen in Fury and Natasha, he knows there's at least some hope for the future. You could argue that he owes it to the world to survive any way he can, because people need the leadership he wasn't there to provide after he was thought dead, but Steve also has a duty to his friends, and he refuses to leave Bucky behind the way he was forced to do the first time around. So he gives his life, not to save the world, which he's done already, but for his friend, an act which the book of John says there is no greater example of love than. By the way, I'm kind of impressed that with friendship as the central theme, the word love never comes up. Steve doesn't get lucky this time like he does in the ice. If Bucky didn't rescue him, he'd be dead. And it's one of the most moving scenes I've seen in a superhero movie, maybe in anything, and a breathtaking shot that's burned in my memory. That's poster-worthy for sure. It's also my favorite moment in the score, the melody of Cap's present-day theme played somberly on piano, like a music box that needs to be wound up again. It's not cheaply trying to make us think our hero might die and then slaps on an easy plot convenience. It has to happen so the films can continue, certainly. But it does so in a completely character-driven way, and our hero is directly responsible for his own rescue. If Steve hadn't lived his life as he did, hadn't built up such a solid bond with Bucky, he'd have drowned. Bucky doesn't even know why he saves Cap. That friendship is practically part of his DNA. And the inherent optimism is the notion that a person's humanity goes deeper than brain chemistry. I don't know if that's true, but I certainly bought it here. The heart motif established in Iron Man that I've continued to analyze with nearly every movie featuring either Tony or Steve isn't blatantly revisited here, but, again, not even remotely on purpose, probably, continues with this scene. Buggy's had his brain fried over and over again by Hydra, wiped out and reset constantly, but something of who he once was remains. They can program him to do horrible things, but it seems they can't totally change his heart. I don't think Bucky had enough screen time in the first Avenger, and it would be easy for casual audiences to not even remember him or what happened to him in that film. And Winter Soldier plays out as if that character were a lot more prominent there than he was. Bucky is a mirror for Steve in history as well as in what's done to him by Hydra, and while I wish that was somehow a little more in the foreground, it's there, and it makes the whole relationship that much more tragic if you notice it. Neither Steve nor Bucky actually gave their lives for their country, though both were thought dead. Both are frozen in ice, and that's what allows them to live all this time but for Bucky it's in cryostasis and he's brought in and out of it all that time so while the last 70 years are for Steve just a long nap Bucky has turned into a programmed assassin for all those decades Steve is Rip Van Winkle Bucky is Robocop for all the sacrifices Steve makes Bucky has it three times worse Steve might feel like he failed at stopping Hydra but his best friend became their star operative So while he doesn't get as much screen time as viewers expected based on the title, he's as sympathetic as Steve, but intelligently is only just beginning to find himself and perhaps to start healing as Steve is by the end. Sam Wilson's fast friendship with Steve is essential to his holding on through the madness. He's the one inkling of mercy the universe shows Steve while everything else seems against him. If Steve had no friend whatsoever to fall back on, and found no one that's a part of this world but still managed to develop his value system, I could maybe see him actually giving up. It is pretty convenient Steve finds a guy he has so much in common with, and someone who used an advanced tech that would make for a great superhero motif while he's out jogging. But there's nothing rushed or forced about the relationship, and it's as genuine a friendship as I've ever seen. A kind of love at first sight, if you will, that I'm instantly invested in. He's also not generic personal details help make characters come alive, and the Trouble Man bit is a fantastic choice. Everyone Cap would meet would have an opinion on what the most important cultural touchstones of the 20th century are, and I love that Sam is so obscure and personal, especially compared to the other things on Cap's list. It's also fitting because the Trouble Man film is also about a hero on the run from the law who takes justice into his own hands, and it involves a criminal organization framing that character for a crime he didn't commit in order to stop him from exposing their sinister plot, not totally unlike S.H.I.E.L.D.'s motivations for going after Steve. And casting helps a lot, too. Anthony Mackey is one of those instantly likable people you wish was your real best friend. And convenient or not, I love how this first meeting defines their friendship. Sam defines himself to Nick Fury in the third act when he says, I do what he does just slower. And that's comedically established from the very beginning when Steve laps Sam and is so polite about it when he won't stop saying, on your left, on each pass that it just turns the knife more. By the end of the movie, on your left has taken on a whole new meaning. Steve says it when he wakes up in the hospital and it's a clever irony but it also reinforces how much they rely on each other now. When Sam said it before they were just two friendly strangers running in a park. Now Steve is always on Sam's left. Sam is his right hand man. They're partners. After that first meeting, nothing about this friendship seems hackneyed and that's impressive. I'm easily convinced that Steve would come to Sam for help when he's on the run because of their scene at the VA hospital. Without that, Sam's just some ex-soldier. With it, he's a kindred spirit. They're both haunted by the loss of a partner and both doing what they can, despite their loneliness, to move on. Sam has, as I suggested earlier, found more purpose in his retirement than Steve has at this point, but they fill that void for each other. Sam can't replace Bucky, and Steve can't replace Riley, but their shared philosophy is built on people working together for a common good. Captain America is a soldier, not a vigilante, although he keeps getting thrown into that role, and that's what makes these superhero movies and not just war or spy pictures. That's partly why Fury's compartmentalization strategy is so foreign to Steve, and so they're both far more comfortable relying on someone they trust and admire than going it alone. Sam doesn't have a character arc per se, but he's rewarded for his faith in people by having the opportunity to help his hero keep his confidence and remain his hero. I also appreciate that he never emits a whiff of jealousy when Steve's old partner resurfaces. A more gimmicky film might fall back on a sort of love triangle, but when Sam tells Cap Bucky might not be the sort of man you save, he's the sort of man you stop, he's not thinking of himself. He's thinking, I imagine, of how difficult it would be for him if it were Riley. Riley. He'd want to save his best friend, too, and what Cap needs in that moment is an impartial observer to tell it like it is. And again, Steve does what he has to in order to stop Bucky, and then takes a near-fatal chance on him. Perhaps that illustrates that as much like Steve as Sam is, Steve still has the most faith in people. Or perhaps, given the same situation, Sam would have done exactly the same thing. Natasha, on the other hand, doesn't have that sort of faith in people, but desperately wants to. She's a metamorph who is whatever she has to be in the moment to survive to the point where I don't think she has a clear picture of herself in her own mind. That contradicts her desire to be a force for good in the world because, as she discovers, that approach might help her survive, but it also makes it easier to be controlled. Friendship is about being open and making compromises, letting another person in, and while she craves companionship to the point where she tries to vicariously experience it by setting Steve up on dates... She's closed off and afraid to let herself be vulnerable because she doesn't want to be controlled again, to willingly allow herself to become the weapon that falls into the wrong hands. And I should mention, she's also a bit of a metamorph for the sake of the narrative as well. Sometimes an ally, sometimes a challenge for Steve, and sometimes the dry-witted comic relief. So instead, she winds up becoming controlled without even knowing it, and it turns out she, like Fury, has been doing Hydra's bidding all along. She refuses Steve's friendship initially because real friendship means telling the truth, and in her experience, it's safer not to even believe in truth. But then she discovers she doesn't know who she's working for, which is as crushing to her as Steve not knowing who he's fighting, and she begins to rethink her position on trusting people. I love that in order to stop Hydra, she sacrifices her secrets, which up until now have been the only things sacred to her. That's maybe Steve's greatest achievement in this movie. He wants to change people in lasting ways that fundamentally alter how we treat one another, opposite again from how Hydra wants to do that, and he manages it with one of the last people on Earth he'd have thought he could. A woman who used to see truth as malleable, something to use to protect yourself, not something to be protected. I also love the subtext in her final scene when she says her covers are all blown and she's going to establish a new one. Steve says that might take some time, and she responds with, I hope so. Her next cover, at least as I read this scene, is whatever identity she finally settles into she's ready to finally take a risk and be her own person rather than letting other people define her. Captain America's message is freedom over simply surviving, and the conclusion of Natasha's character arc leaves her finally wanting that too, which will see her begin to explore an Age of Ultron when she pursues a relationship with Bruce Banner. And as much as Natasha enjoys flirting with Steve throughout the film, And the kiss and the discussion of how much practice Steve's had is great. I'm glad it never hints at turning into a romance, not just because it subverts expectations and doesn't do the typical thing, but because that's not something Steve would be ready for any more than he's ready to date a girl with a lip ring. And the same goes for her. They end up with shared experience in common here after they both discover the world isn't what they thought it was and everything they've done seems for naught. But a black widow who embraces a singular identity and calls Steve a friend is still far enough away from Steve's ideology I don't see their falling in love over the course of these events. Natasha's inclusion and prominence in this movie is one of its smartest moves. She was previously somewhat undefined and mysterious, and viewers were clamoring to get a clearer picture of her. I love, then, that her arc is all about how no one really knows her. It wasn't that she wasn't given enough character development before, at least retroactively. It was that the time wasn't right to flesh her out, because Natasha wasn't ready to allow herself to be fleshed out, and again, that's the thing that makes those decisions in those earlier movies look like better choices than they really were at the time comparing her worldview to Steve's is fascinating. They have exactly the opposite experiences, and so they have nearly opposite worldviews. And this idea isn't informed by this movie, but it took someone a little more like Captain America, a man who has the family life Steve always hoped for but tragically couldn't have, to bring out as much of her humanity as is on display at the beginning of the film with Clint Barton. And again, it would have been a crying shame not to include her because of her clear parallels with the Winter Soldier, who was basically Captain America if he got kidnapped and was transformed Formed into Black Widow. And certainly she should be here because she's a top-level S.H.I.E.L.D. operative and this is a S.H.I.E.L.D. movie. But it's not necessarily a given that she would be included, especially considering Hawkeye isn't here. That's a major criticism of the film from a lot of fans and I can't say I disagree. Dealing with Natasha and Clint's relationship here would almost certainly have been too much to tackle given how tightly woven this narrative is. But considering the central theme here is friendship, it's pretty glaring that his name never comes up. Tony's does when Pierce tells Fury he wants Iron Man at his niece's birthday party party but considering how much stark tech is used by shield and the experience he and steve had together in the avengers it's hard to believe he wouldn't have responded to steve as a fugitive earlier in the movie and that he wouldn't have come racing to the scene when the helicarriers fell out of the sky maybe he wasn't in town and maybe hawkeye was on vacation visiting his family on their secluded farm in the middle of nowheresville which of course we don't know about yet but i think there should have been some discussion as to why they weren't there In their commentary, the Rousseaus basically defend it with the creative license argument. When they were reading comics growing up, there were constantly stories where some more powerful hero could have flown in and solved Captain America's problems for him. But you can't always serve continuity and realism to tell good, singular character stories. And I generally agree with that. But I think it's a problem here in a way it isn't in something like Iron Man 3. This isn't a singular character story. Yes, Captain America is the protagonist. And everybody else, even if they have a character arc, serves him as that main character. But it's about the entire organization of S.H.I.E.L.D. too. To include some major players, but not tell us where others even are seems awkward. And it's one of the only things in the movie that takes me out. If it were simply Captain America is fighting some supervillain, and it's his story, and it would be really cumbersome to explain where every single other character is, and why they're not here to help, I totally get that! But this isn't that sort of isolated story. The Russo's are making huge retroactive changes to this entire world. Neither we nor anyone involved with these movies knew S.H.I.E.L.D. had been compromised by HYDRA before this movie was made, and I love that. One of my favorite things about writing is stumbling onto that idea that changes everything in hindsight but completely fits. To the point that people might not even believe you when you say you weren't planning on that reveal all the time. Where it would have been a grave mistake not to take that wonderful opportunity and run with it. Happy accidents are the best. But the Rousseau's are having their cake and eating it too, in saying this is Captain America's story, so we should suspend our disbelief about other characters who might show up, especially because Barton and Stark are characters for whom it would be completely out of character to not show up, again, unless they just didn't know about any of this. And it becomes even more glaring when, in the third chapter of this particular story, you involve a good chunk of major characters in the MCU and make reference to almost every other movie. Nick Fury goes through a similar character arc to Natasha's. He's put in an unusually vulnerable place, and Captain America proves to him by the end that there are people he should trust implicitly. His journey is the inverse of Steve's, in a way. At the beginning of the film, Steve feels out of control, and Fury feels completely in control. Steve thought he lost a friend and rediscovers him, while Fury discovers the man he thought was his closest friend, or at least the closest thing Fury gets to having a friend, is actually the mastermind behind HYDRA and has ordered his assassination. Contrasted with Steve and Sam, who want the same things for the same reasons, Fury and Pierce have an almost Professor X-Magneto relationship. They appear to want the same things, but upon further reflection, they do not. The difference is Magneto usually does his best to not have to try to kill Professor X. They both think people need to be controlled to ensure peace and neither trust people, but Pierce wants to change them, while Fury simply wants to protect them. He thinks he has everyone's best interests at heart, and he's sympathetic because his heart is in the right place, but he's misguided. Even if he could be trusted to only use his weapons against the most dangerous of people, that's too much power for any one person. And how can he ensure whoever takes the job after him will be there for the right reasons? And it turns out the man he's working for and who he thought was his friend isn't there for the right reasons, and his compartmentalization approach comes back to bite him. I suppose the problem is that the one person he trusted was the worst person to trust, which, for a moment, seems to justify his paranoia, which comes up comedically when he says, see, this is the kind of thing that gives me trust issues. But I think Steve would argue that anyone who operates that way hasn't earned your trust, Steve trusts people as a rule, but he's not an idiot. He has healthy suspicion of several characters throughout the movie, including Fury and Natasha. I like to see more Natasha ask Steve if he would trust her to risk her life for his as she did for him, and his answer is, I would now. The fact that she values his trust after everything they've been through tells Steve that she deserves it. Pierce is constantly playing a game of chess, even with people that think he's on their side. A guy who's such a fantastic manipulator, he makes the World Security Council put Project Insight back on schedule through a reverse psychology gambit, making them think that's not what he wants. Steve doesn't trust Pierce when he tries to make him think his prime motivation is avenging Fury's death. He's an idealist, but he's been around the block with military men and politicians. Steve knows there's more going on there, and that he's in an interrogation, not a debrief. So Steve would say Fury's problem isn't that he trusts too much, it's that he's a poor judge of character because he distrusts people as a rule. Plus, Fury never really trusts anyone, and has a contingency to deal even with Pierce in that fantastic reveal of the secret retina scan he has programmed for his covered eye. The story isn't just Steve versus the world. It's not all black and white. Not just trusting people is good and distrusting people is bad. Even Steve did, as Fury says, some bad stuff during World War II to ensure people's freedom. A story choice, by the way, that further humanizes Steve, and I thought was an incredibly gutsy move. Like with everything, the truth is somewhere in the middle. I like that he's not easily swayed to Steve's side, or totally a changed man by the end. I think Natasha makes greater strides, but once again, Fury's a guy who was perfectly comfortable with his outlook, and watched his world crash down around him. He's going to be a lot slower to change. I like that he wants to salvage what he can, and Steve insists that they take S.H.I.E.L.D. down completely. Fury clings to the familiar, and tries to grab every shred of control he can, but not only is S.H.I.E.L.D. an engine with so many broken parts, it can't be repaired, but even if it could, Fury's kind of leadership breeds his exact brand of paranoia. S.H.I.E.L.D. would continue to be a band-aid for the country's security problems, not a solution, and would likely continue to exacerbate them. If S.H.I.E.L.D. were to continue, it would have to be rebuilt from the ground up, and by a team of people who counted on each other, not one person with all the world's secrets. Which, I guess, sort of happens, not that anyone in these movies really notices. Fury, by the end, comes to accept that his way doesn't really work, and begins to trust people that have proven themselves trustworthy. I love the subtle symbolism in Fury's eye patch. When he reveals the secret retinal scan, he tells Pierce, if you want to stay ahead of me, you have to keep both eyes open. Fury has tried to do that himself, but he's failed. He has a contingency for everything, but his eye patch represents the blind eye he's had for everything going on right under his nose with Hydra. He believes he's a realist, but he has no idea what's really going on. And that the worst threat on earth is his own organization. So at the end, he sets the eye patch ablaze and puts on a pair of sunglasses. He's still the realist, looking through a black lens, seeing the world for the dark and scary place it is, but now he's keeping both eyes open. One of my favorite moments in the film is the story Fury tells Steve about his grandfather, an elevator bellman who walked home from work every day with a gun in his lunch bag because, as time went on, people in the neighborhood became more and more untrustworthy. That's an incredibly layered story because it perfectly encapsulates Fury's worldview. He loves people, he just doesn't trust them very much. And why he thinks Project Insight is necessary. He directly compares his grandfather's gun to the helicarrier weapons he's about to point at everyone in the country. But the secret threat... ...that's right there in front of him, that's about to use him to take over... ...is actually responsible for creating the rougher world that changed before his grandfather's eyes. Assuming that's something that really happened and it's not just a parable. I mean, Fury's a really secretive guy. We don't even get his dates on his tombstone. And then, when Steve is ambushed by some of the men he's trusted with his life in the past... ...that happens in an elevator. Man, am I jealous of the command of narrative on display here... But let's get into some more criticisms, because I do have a few. It's a mostly fortified castle, but it has its cracks, and they're too random to address inside my main analysis. There's a big potential leap in the story logic that's necessary to tell the story, maybe, and to tell it now. And I go back and forth on whether it's really a leap or not. This is just a big question mark for me right now, and feel free of course to sign off in the comments if you think I'm missing something that definitely answers it. Would Hydra really have someone at the top of S.H.I.E.L.D. that isn't one of them? And Doesn't that seem like a giant liability? It's a great idea thematically, of course, especially for Fury's character arc. He has to learn that his way doesn't work by being betrayed by the guy over him, hiding things just like he is from the people he purports to trust. But if there are so many guys in S.H.I.E.L.D. that are straight up Hydra, going around saying Hail Hydra, why not just put someone in charge who is Hydra already? Apparently they've been infiltrated going all the way back, or almost all the way, so how hard would it have been to put someone else in command of the whole operation? You wouldn't risk the guy in charge who you have to convince to put the helicarriers in the air, discovering S.H.I.E.L.D.'s compromised right before he puts that into effect, which is what happens. And that plot point, honestly, is maybe a little too easy. Now, obviously, you have to find a way to do this and not throw Fury completely under the bus. He can't be Hydra. And I'm sure the idea is that you need leaders who aren't really with you to do your bidding so you know you're manipulating people to think like you even when they have no idea you're there so you can create a lasting change. But again, I question if what they're doing is sustainable. I'd think killing 20 million people at once would alter the results of the algorithm and maybe lead to people rising up and turning into the sorts of people who belong on that list. But I guess if you have a gun pointed at everyone, you think you can pacify everybody else but that won't effectively make people give up their freedom the way you've patiently managed to do that over all this time. So Project Insight makes sense to me, but only to a point. I question whether Hydra wouldn't really have waited longer and tried to naturally make the world more Orwellian, and what the sudden rush is. I don't remember any talk about Captain America showing up, making Hydra decide to start doing things ahead of schedule, and I could see they're reacting to superheroes in general in that way. And aliens attacking wasn't part of Hydra's plan, Fury's partly to blame for that, but Hydra didn't force that to happen, so Fury would think Project Insight was necessary, which is his main justification for it. This horrible thing happened that we weren't prepared for, so we've got to be prepared next time. Also, I wonder if Fury himself is on the algorithm hit list, or did Pierce think he could continue to control him after killing 20 million people? I praise Winter Soldier for its lack of story conveniences besides Cap's introduction to Sam, which is plausible and only remotely a problem because the timing is so neat. But there is one big one in which our heroes are saved because an ally is in the right place at the right time, and it all just seems too easy. Maria Hill saves Steve, Sam, and Natasha from being executed and buried by Rumlow. Right after she has that great line that was probably an ad-lib, given the outtakes, that thing was squeezing my brain. Yeah, I felt that way before. I had that with Man of Steel. She is disguised as one of the guards sitting in their paddy wagon. Where was she throughout the epic bridge and then street fight with the Winter Soldier? How does she know they were being arrested and able to beat them to that truck without being detected? I'm not saying I need a scene where Hill is doing that, but some sort of contextualization of where she's been and how she got there would have made this seem less like a clever way to write our characters out of this situation. Steve and his friends have all been really proactive, and up to this point, come up with really plausible ways using their own ingenuity to get out of scrapes, like the cell phone bluff Natasha pulls on Winter Soldier moments earlier. There is a scene that was cut showing Hill thrown off the mission to find Captain America, but I don't know if that would have helped or hurt. She's secretly working with Fury, sure, so she may be getting some intel apart from S.H.I.E.L.D., but without being there and in the field, I don't see how she's getting in that suit and sneaking into that truck. Another thing that happens off-screen that I can't quite reconcile is the mission Sam and Natasha must have gone on to get Sam's wings. The first couple times in the theater, I missed Sam explaining where the wings are and Natasha saying it wouldn't be a problem to go get them. And I thought they came totally out of nowhere. They don't. We know they're planning to go get them, and we're told where they are. But the events of the film take place in such a short period of time, I'm not sure when this happened. I certainly don't need things to happen in the scene that don't serve story. We know they're going to go get them, and then he's wearing them, So that's continuity, and if it was a really easy mission and nobody saw them to alert law enforcement that our fugitive heroes have been spotted, there's really no reason to include it. But I can't help but feel like it's a missing bit I should have seen, I think because of the way Natasha says it shouldn't be a problem. As the Rousseaus say in their commentary, when you've seen a lot of movies... You have an inherent sense of story structure and pacing, instincts about what should naturally happen next. When someone says it shouldn't be a problem, I can't help but expect it to be a bigger ordeal than that person thought it would be. Those sorts of omissions are a lot more noticeable in a movie this tightly woven. And so that's a credit to the piece, of course. Also, like The Dark Knight, there's a lot more practical effects than in your average action or superhero movie, but there are a couple of shots where the CG really stands out, and it suddenly feels like I'm watching a Pixar movie. All the action on the Lumerian star is shot on a real ship, and is some of the most spectacular action in the movie, but the establishing shot of the star is entirely computer-generated, and it's not bad CG, but cringeworthy in a movie where so much is shot practically. Same thing goes for the wide shot of the Project Insight hangar. But somehow the helicarriers in the air, in broad daylight, look pretty good. Now, fair warning, because this next thing is going to sound like a really small matter, but I'm going to spend some time on it. A lot of viewers took issue with the Winter Soldier title, considering Bucky's relatively small amount of screen time, as I said earlier. Again, I'm incredibly impressed with how much is done with him, both thematically and as a tragic character. And anyone who suggested he was shoehorned in and didn't even need to be in this film, I think is missing a lot in what the story is about. I would agree that Winter Soldier seems like a misleading title if it was only referring to that character. It would be like if Silver Surfer was hardly in Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer, or if he lost his board in the first act and was grounded the rest of the movie. I also think it's a totally fair complaint because that may be something the movie is a little too subtle about. The Russo's seem maybe a little sick of explaining the title in their commentary, and again, the work should stand on its own, and I'm not in love with their feeling the need to explain it there. Or rather, that they would expect people to pick up on it without listening to that commentary it shouldn't surprise them that people were a little perplexed by it. If the title of your movie is a character's name, people aren't likely to analyze your title any further than that. A lot of people aren't going to think about the title anyway. If Apocalypse is in X-Men Apocalypse, not a lot of people are going to cry foul when the world doesn't actually end in that film. And as much as I love reading titles as part of the piece they're attached to, sometimes to the chagrin of my viewers, superhero movie titles don't have a long history of being particularly artistic or making the movie a more layered experience. Batman doesn't return in Batman Returns, except to the movie theater. And that might drive me crazy, but audiences get it. For most of these things, the title is commercial. They're to sell the movie as much as the posters and the trailers and the 64-ounce fountain drink cups. But in this case, the title is a part of the piece. Rousseau's explained that the Winter Soldier is a moniker for Captain America himself, not just the name of the main antagonist. It's what it sounds like if there was no character named that. Captain America, colon, the Winter Soldier. When Ed Brubaker created The Winter Soldier in his Captain America run of the comics, he based it on a term used during the Vietnam War, which goes back to a quote from Thomas Paine in The Crisis. These are the times that try men's souls. We've all heard that, but a lot of us haven't heard this next part. The Summer Soldier and the Sunshine Patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman." So the opposite of that, a winter soldier would be one that endures every hardship in the name of preserving his country's freedom. As the end of the paragraph suggests, heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. The opposite of summer soldier was coined during the Vietnam War to describe soldiers who endured and despite hardship refused to stay silent about the atrocities they witnessed there. There was a documentary released in 1972 about this called Winter Soldier. Bucky is, again, a perversion, not just of Captain America, but of that idea, as he's forced to create atrocity against his will. So it's a wonderfully nuanced and apt title if you do some research, but it's certainly not something most people would even think to look up, because, again, Winter Soldier just comes off like a cool-sounding supervillain name. Neither the quote nor the history are really common knowledge. It's problematic because the Rousseaus, again, in their commentary, seem to hope they're educating people with this but the origin of the name itself never comes up in the movie so I don't know why they would expect that this is another case where the movie maybe errs too far on the side of the subtlety I don't know if the history could have been worked in without feeling tacked on like Star Trek episodes where the episode title is blatantly forced into dialogue but I think it's necessary in a movie where the quote is also someone's title or name Something like Star Trek The Undiscovered Country, for instance, maybe wouldn't need the Shakespeare quote in dialogue because what The Undiscovered Country is becomes clear in context, a brave new future of compromise and understanding between two previously warring peoples. Without it here, I was thinking of more superficial things. Bucky was found in the snow. He was in cryostasis. Winter. But there's a lot more to it than that. I've had a really interesting article on The Mary Sue by Glenn Tickle, who reached out to podcast host Jesse Thorne who was put off by the title of this movie because his father is a disabled veteran who helped start the Vietnam Veterans Against the War Organization, which was instrumental during the Winter Soldier trials. His quote in that article is my source for that Vietnam history. Here's what he said about his beef with the movie title. I don't presume to know what the folks at Marvel were shooting for when they named the popcorn movie after the Winter Soldier hearings. Maybe they knew about the hearings, maybe they didn't. Maybe they just thought it sounded cool. I couldn't tell you. I haven't seen the movie either. Maybe it's not what I'm expecting. In the meantime, I just hope it drives a few people to learn a bit more about the history of the movement that spawned the hearings, and about the brave men and women who went to war, came home, and dedicated their lives to ending the conflict. I wonder if he's ever sat down and watched the movie since then. I think he might be pleasantly surprised. It's certainly a lot more than a popcorn movie, and it's not an exploitative use of that term, I don't think, by Brubaker or the Rousseaus. This is one of the absolute best modern cinematic examples of the hero's journey story, about a man that holds onto his principles until the bitter end and is ultimately rewarded for refusing to back down. It's an impressively dense movie for its running time, just over two hours. A lot of Marvel films are 2.15 or 2.20, and Civil War, understandable for its circus tent of characters to juggle, clocks in at 2.27. The movie has downtime, allows its characters to stop and breathe, yet every scene and every moment feels like it belongs. It's a wonderfully entertaining and suspenseful spy thriller, and sure, it works as a popcorn movie too. If you don't want to do any thinking, it's never boring and there's plenty to stimulate your monkey cranium. Even the talking parts are injected with plenty of style and witty banter to keep you going before you get on the next roller coaster. The Hydra reveal is a great slap-you-in-the-face surprise if you're invested in the Marvel Cinematic Universe at large. But it works pretty well on its own as a solid conspiracy thriller with a sci-fi bent. The Dark Knight might be a steak, but The Winter Soldier is a steak dinner. It fills the requirement for every literary food group, plus has plenty of well-integrated action and levity for dessert. I'm giving Captain America The Winter Soldier a 4 out of 4. Just as-